Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And we have a special guest uh, this week. Paul Jensen is uh, someone that I've met uh, this year, in fact, at a uh, International Cultic Studies Association conference in Louisville and heard his talk uh, called Discovering the Worst Kept Secrets of My High Demand Church. Uh, but really, Paul, we'll get into it, but you were raised in the Assemblies of God. Uh, it's the world's largest Pentecostal denomination. Uh, and when, when I learned of that and heard your talk and you mentioned Dowie and other uh, source people, I was like, oh, I should introduce you to John Collins, who grew up in the Message Church of William Branham, who in fact grew up just like 10 minutes from Louisville, Kentucky, where we were when we first met at that conference. Uh, so you you did a deep dive similar to, to John Collins. You wanted to un understand who are, what were the origin stories, et cetera, that I want you to get into. But before we start, I'll just say that you have left. You are a successful entrepreneur, business person, strategist, communications expert for more than 20 years in the field of global health. And you have a con consulting practice called Italia, where you help health and science organizations learn how to communicate their research uh, and you also are a sought-after ghostwriter and written for multiple heads of state, elected officials, a Nobel Peace Laureate, heads of UN agencies. Uh, a big shot. Um, but uh, so I'm, I'm honored to know you and I'm trying to secretly recruit you, not so secretly because I'm announcing it, to help us with freedom of mind messaging because, um, and as we've chatted now a few times, we, we, we realize the world needs to understand undue influence and mind control and what is an authoritarian cult and how do we protect people, et cetera. So with that, Paul, tell us about, you know, let's start with the Assemblies of God and, and uh, your, your backstory for our listeners, please. Yeah, sure. So for people who are not familiar with the Assemblies of God or never heard of it before, it's the world's largest Pentecostal denomination. And so in the United States, these are their numbers, but in the U.S., they claim 3 million adherents. Globally now, it's up to 85 million. Wow. And... It's part of the larger Pentecostal and charismatic movement, which they now refer to as the spirit-led movement, and which I, I've heard you quote Pew's numbers on this, 650 million, they say globally within this broader movement. And so the Pentecostal, I'm sorry, the Assemblies of God is the biggest denomination within that broader movement. And explain uh, like what Pentecostal yeah. and charismatic is for our sure. listeners who may not know. So there, there are a few doctrines, these are core beliefs that are part of Pentecostalism that are sort of add-ons to what you would consider to be more traditional uh, Protestant uh, Christianity. Right. So, and we'll just go into a few of them. So one of them is speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. So tongue speak, and this is part of what's called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So this is an experience. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. This is an experience that would follow after your conversion. So you would be saved or you would become born again. And then as you progress to a certain level of spiritual maturity, and as you get closer and closer to God, then you go through this experience called baptism in the Holy Spirit. And according to the doctrine, the first outward evidence that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit is that you would speak in tongues. Yeah, he if I can interrupt and just say sure. that, um, so my first exposure to speaking in tongues with it was with an authoritarian cult called the Way International of Victor yeah. Paul Whalewell, and they yeah. had a course to teach people how to speak in tongues. So as I was counseling people out, I figured I would learn to yeah. just 
to see if I could do it. And it's basically going into a trance state. The other thing I just want to add, and then we'll go back to you, is just that this was like the late 1800s this was invented. This was not, I mean, members believe it was early Christianity and everybody did it, but it's not. This was an invention later. Yeah, I mean, it's become really a a cultural invention that started, they say, in 1901 is sort of the first instance where it became a new thing. And they, they traced this back all the way to the Book of Acts, to the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost and the followers of Christ were in the upper room and the sound of a mighty rushing wind came in and they had tongues of fire above their heads. And then they all began to speak in different languages in these other tongues, and, supernaturally. And that was another big thing because people say that they're ancient tongues and actually right. linguists have analyzed yeah the phonemes, and they're like, these are not any ancient tongues. And that was something that I, in my my experience hearing this constantly, I thought, you know, just one of these times I would love to hear a tonal language. You know, someone speaks some language based on Thai or something, but all of the phonemes are are English phonemes. Right, Right? but if people are Iranian background converts to a U.S., they'll have Iranian-sounding phonemes in the back. I mean, it is something understandable and traceable to the real world and not supernatural forces. Yeah, Yeah, please continue. Just use phonemes based on your native language. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and and I would love to go into a deeper discussion of tongues because what I found was actually super interesting Uh, But that's one of the beliefs that differentiates Pentecostal Christianity from other more traditional forms. And divine healing is a huge one. And so constantly you would hear testimonies of all kinds of miraculous healings, tumors suddenly disappearing, people even being raised from the dead. Missionaries would come to our church and tell these stories about how out in the mission field in Africa or Haiti, they prayed and Someone was raised from the dead. And this is seen as uh, the manifestation of signs and wonders mm-hmm. that is to serve as a proof point that you actually have the power of God in your life. The Holy Spirit is living within you and enabling you to perform these supernatural miracles. And of course, you always hear, well, it, it flummoxed the doctors and the nurses have no idea what happened. You know, but we know, we know what happened. There's medical records to back this up, and it's very difficult to find any any actual documentation, you know, for these kinds of things. But it's it's a core belief, and you have to believe this in order to be considered a Pentecostal Christian. Right. Another one is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So God is going to come back bodily form. All of the true believers will rise up into the air to meet Him. And ultimately, everyone is transplanted to a new heaven and a new earth that will be prepared only for, of course, true believers where there will be no sadness, no sickness, no fear, nothing like that. No sin, no evil. Mm-hmm. And everyone will live in, for all of eternity with heaven, I mean, with, with Jesus Christ in heaven. And here, the imminence was such a massive Part of this because again this is you see this sort of belief across christianity right christ will come back believers go to heaven but this was really a driving uh way of getting people to become born again it was constantly used you know christ could come back before this church service is even over right he could come back tonight and if you are not ready you will end up in hell forever and ever and ever in a place of unimaginable torment yeah so and this was a thousand years ago that it's imminent in it could happen in your service a thousand years ago exactly exactly so you you see this a lot with you know what they would call the altar call which is at the end of the service people come down to the front and you make a choice whether or not you want to become born again or not and this idea that you're not going to know what happens to you after you die unless um you give your life over you know, you die to yourself, and then you can have certainty that you'll go to heaven and you'll escape hell, or of course, all of the, the evildoers and, and anyone who's wicked, which happens to be, if you look into the documents and sort of probe a little bit, everyone who's not within the warm sort of embrace of the church is considered 
to be wicked. And this is by policy. You know, this is on paper. Right. And just to remind our listeners, you were raised in this, correct? I was raised in this. And I can't say that I have this sort of this sort of backstory where as an adult, I was a true believer and then, you know, deconstructed my faith. It was the sort of thing where growing up, when I was very young, I just assumed all of these things were obvious. They're true, right? Once I started to get older and I was in high school, I remember, uh, I just, it never, it never sat well with me. You know, I was never really comfortable and a lot of it had to do with the manifestations, you know, people falling on the ground and the tongue speak and just like the, the sheer emotions of it. And so, but I was not really a boat rocker either. You know, I was right. not the sort of real, the, the sort of guy who was like, I'm not going to church. You know, it was, it was mandatory. We had, we had, you know, there was no question about it. Right. But my plan was, well, when I leave and I go to college, then I'm just going to leave forever. That'll be that. Yeah, but didn't but you worry years, about Armageddon? Like, wasn't that drilled into your brain? It was. And I, I yeah, and I think on certain levels, in, in ways that only later that I really started to appreciate, you know, Armageddon and all of these things happening, the fears of them being imminent, uh, it, it meant that there was not really any long-term planning you know, because Christ could come back at any moment. And I found myself as a young adult having a hard time planning long-term or thinking long-term. So it was more like they were sort of in, in me mm-hmm. and sort of at a deep level and not really wanting this stuff to be true, I think. Mm-hmm. And not to be, to be honest, not really finding it all that cool. You know, back then, this is like in the, in the 90s, we were, we, I, we were still sort of fringy. And I've seen over the last 20 years, that's no longer the case. I mean, these big Pentecostal megachurches, you see charismatic megachurches, which is like an sort of an offshoot of Pentecostalism, uh, where they really believe in the return of uh, prophets and apostles. And these. So they're recruiting and attracting celebrities, like A-list celebrities, you know, like Justin Bieber. And, yeah, and so New things. Apostolic Reformation is a, is a network uh, they, yeah. uh, of these... These groups, I wrote about them in the cult of Trump, and uh, uh, and and people say, how could people still believe Trump won the 2020 election when all of his own officials say that he lost? And it's if you have a prophet, you and you are afraid of satanic invasion, <laughs> and your prophet said he God told him that God that Trump won, then Trump won, period. Like stop thinking kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, there are these 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 other core beliefs that I wouldn't say that they're doctrines, but they're still a very a very core part of the culture. And one of them is, well, here's a few. The material world around you is real, but it's not as real as the spirit realm. So there's a veil behind this veil in the heavenlies, there are things that are happening. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the people who are involved in the, the new apostolic uh, reformation, they're, they go as detailed, they have a whole mythology and it gets so detailed that there's a whole taxonomy of demons that have names and they have territorial assignments where they govern over different cities and towns and oppress them and deceive the people. Right. So if you go out and you try to spread the word and people are like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. Well, it might be because they're they can't see because there's a demon who has legal rights to oppress that area. And you might even have to transplant yourself in the spirit to a courtroom in the heavenlies where you'll sit in front of an angelic tribunal and you'll state your case. And then they may issue a ruling then that will allow you to then move into a, a city and start to convert people, right? And so you see all these in their books and their writings, the 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 NAR for short, right? New Apostolic Reformation. You, you see then for, basically tell these stories. Well, we we went into spiritual warfare and we warred against the territorial principality, the strongman demon who governed over this area, and we were able to get a, like a heavenly restraining order against him, or we were able to get a legal decree that said he no longer had rights to oppress the people in this area. And after that, we just start, we just, 
reaped a harvest of souls. We just saw people converting left and right, and all these things happened. And and even things like natural disasters, like you know, floods will go away, or hurricanes will go away, or you know, things like that. And it comes to, back to this idea that what you see in front of you, material reality, is not actual reality. It's temporal. It's not eternal. Right. And and these apostles and prophets, you know, because through their own spiritual authority they are the ones who truly have their finger on the pulse of what's happening in the heavenlies and the other realm. So they are a conduit of truth. Right, right. And protection against satanic invasion. And a lot yeah. of these people believe that God is using Trump as God used King Cyrus, who right. is a sinner. You know, yep, yeah. Trump's a sinner, but he's our, you know, bully. For God, uh, so yeah. they buy into that notion, which for everybody else in the United States and the world, they're going like, "How can people who claim to be religious think that it's okay to have a liar, a pathological liar, who stole thirty-five thousand lies, represent God?" Well, you know, because as you explain, the spiritual world is more real than this, you know, world of Satan. Yeah, and we might not we not, might not understand fully understand God's plan, but it's important that we give ourselves over to it in obedience. And any sort of hesitation that we might have on our our own part, we need to put that aside right. and trust the plan. And I think what's happening is that what's really happening is that it's very transactional. It's just a power relationship, right? So now they're they're at the table these sort of leaders are at the table of power in a way that they were not before. And their goal ultimately is power here on earth. And, and this, is, this is an area where the NAR and what's called classical Pentecostalism sort of, they split doctrinally and it has to do with the end of the world. So I was raised to believe that the world was going to get worse and worse and worse and then Jesus Christ will come back and he'll basically save us, right? And, and all the believers will go to heaven and heaven will be somewhere else. Mm. Whereas the NAR, what they teach is they say, no, there's not like a, and they almost reference other cults, right? They're like, there's not going to be a spaceship that comes down and whisks you away. There's not, you know, it's not like there's going to be like an eject button and suddenly you're going to leave. No, heaven is going to be here on earth. Mm. And our job is to make the culture of earth mirror the culture of heaven mm. to such a degree that it sort of creates almost like a magnetic pull for Jesus Christ, right? Mm. Like, oh, it's earth is almost like heaven now. And so now I, I'm going to go back and then he'll come back and then he'll sort of finish the job. Mm. You know, he'll annihilate the wicked and, and then they will co-reign with Christ over what will become a, a perfected earth. And so, so it sort of fits in that him, you know, giving them a seat at the table fits totally within their sort of end world views, their eschatological views of how this all ends, right? They are given power. Right. And you can even see, I don't know if you know Stephen Strang, he, he sort of runs this whole media empire called Charisma. Uh, I've so heard they, of it, but pl please tell our listeners. Yeah, so he runs a media operation called Charisma. They, they have a digital digital news publishing arm. Uh, they do events. They were a sponsor of the, uh, what was that? The big um, sort of traveling roadshow that's been going around with, with Michael Flynn. Oh, my you goodness. See, the Reawaken America tour. Yes, I'm afraid I am aware of that. And uh, yeah, so. Michael Flynn is Catholic charismatic. And my understanding mm -hmm. is they've made a union to share political agendas, the, Pen the Protestant evangelical pro um, uh, um, Pentecostals and the charismatic Catholics. But they're That's all, right. yeah. they all want to get rid of the gays and they want to impose a theocracy, et cetera, and get rid of women's rights over their own bodies. Oh, yeah. I mean, get, get rid of, ultimately, if you read the, and this, what's really crazy is you can just buy these books on Amazon. 
You know, you, you didn't, it's, we're beyond those days where you couldn't get this stuff at your brick and mortar, Barnes and Noble or Borders books, where you had a buyer there sort of figuring out what people wanted to buy. Now it's all this online marketplace. Uh, yeah. And so it's, they have third party sellers. So you can just buy these books on Amazon and read them and figure out what their strategies are. And that's, that's it, right? So they, they want to restore present day culture to the way that it was in the Bible. Well, that's and, what and they comes... claim that it was the way it was in the Bible. Yeah. But yeah. Christian theologians, and I just, you know, met with Darren Slade and interviewed him. He, he th says the historical records are in great uh, conflict with what the claims are. Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I listened to that interview. It was, yeah. it was really nice to, to hear that. Yeah. So please, yeah, I want like you to sure. I want you to teach my listeners what you found out. Like you said, I want to go back and I want to look at the 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 claims of of uh, of, of authority that um, the assemblies of God. What so sh share some of the highlights of your research, please? Yeah, and and so I want to preface it by saying this is really significant because. These beliefs and these people who made them part of this core doctrinal system, these are the direct ancestors of the people who we see now who are within Trump's spiritual uh, inner circle. Yeah, we right? say so spiritual in air quotes for those exactly. who are listening. Yeah. Yeah. So th these are, you can, you can trace this out. So, you know, so I, I started with buying a book from the Assemblies of God called People of the Spirit. And they published, published this thing in 2014 to commemorate their 100-year anniversary. So mm -hmm. they were founded in 1914. Yep. Hot Springs, Arkansas. Like 300 people. Tiny. And in the beginning of the book, there is a chapter in there. Basically, it lays out, like, these are our founding fathers of sorts. Mm -hmm. And some of what was in there was familiar and some of it was new. And so the first person who I sort of really dug into is this guy named Charles Fox Perrin. And even if you read academic sort of books on the history of the Pentecostal movement, if you had to pick one person who was sort of the founding father, it's this guy, Charles Perrin. And it's a little bit more complicated because this is not like the Catholic Church where you have a very traditional hierarchy and pope at the top. It's a network. Right. And it's still right. very, very networked. Right. Right. So this guy, Charles Parham, he gathers about 30 of his followers in a mansion, an old mansion in Topeka, Kansas, uh, on uh, January 1st, 1901. And they're there. He sets up a school. Right. And they're, they're there. They all live together. They share all of their money and stuff like this. And he's teaching them. And he wants to really figure out what are the things that will prove that we have restored the real Christianity, right? The true stuff, like it was in the book of Acts and the New Testament, because, you know, Christianity has become corrupted. It's not real anymore. We want to bring back the, the good stuff. What would that look like? And, and he comes to think, well, it's speaking in tongues based on what happened in the book of Acts, right? So he's got all of his followers up in the upper room in this mansion. And that they're that they're renting and according to what he says exactly like what happened in the new testament happened there right the rushing wind the, the fires the flames on the heads and a woman started it all her, her name was agnes osman and she starts spontaneously speaking in chinese and she couldn't speak any other language for like three days and she wrote in chinese and everything but everyone else also spoke languages too like you know, Turkish and German and all these other languages they apparently spoke. And that was the first modern day Pentecostal revival where people started speaking in tongues. And there are a couple of things about this that are really interesting. First is that the tongues speak, the glossolalia that, that you just demonstrated, where it's unintelligible to us and, and we're supposed to just believe that this is sort of like a supernatural spirit language. That's not what he taught or what he believed. He believed that they would actually speak in modern day languages, except that they would supernaturally and miraculously be able to speak them. And the reason was because God, Jesus Christ was coming back soon. And 
who had time to learn a language in order to spread the gospel and save as many souls as possible before Christ came back, right? So this was, this was like a supernatural shortcut uh, to like learning a different language. That was the rationale. So, but, his, but now like looking back, the, the, the Assemblies of God says, well, this is where the first Pentecost, modern Pentecostal um, uh, revival happened in Topeka and, and Agnes spoke Chinese. And then it, the, the word just sort of spread from there and spread from there. And, and this is sort of where we get this doctrine. Now, here's what's really interesting is that in his own writings, he says, yeah, even the newspapers covered it. You know, there, there was document, documented evidence of her speaking in Chinese. So I thought that was interesting. And, and I don't know if you know newspapers.com. I'm not being paid to say this at all. I don't work for them, but it's a wonderful resource. You just get a subscription and you get access to millions of old newspapers. So I went back and, and looked in, at the old Topeka uh, newspapers, and sure enough, there's a picture of this writing in Chinese from Agnes Osmond, except it's clearly just a bunch of scribbles on a piece of paper. Yeah, I looked, and, you showed that to me, and uh, we, yeah. can, we can maybe put the graphic if, if we don't yeah. do a copyright infringement uh, for people to see. This is not Chinese. These are scribbles. Right, right. So clearly this didn't happen, but bringing it back to present day and the cult-like activity and the mind control and the gaslighting in that book that the assemblies published in 2014, there's a reproduction of that, that Chinese in there too. And you can, it says in the caption, Agnes Osmond's writing in Chinese. So you can, you can look at even their own contemporary records that the assemblies of God today and they're telling you this is chinese and this is part of our origin and you've story. talked to chinese and, people and they said nope yeah yeah <laughs> just to you know just to cover all my bases i have a, one of my best friends his uncle is a chinese scholar at suny binghamton and so you know i emailed him and he was like yeah rest easy that doesn't resemble chinese <laughs> at all but you can see in all of their training materials and things of this nature they use the the manifested, quote unquote, signs and wonders, these miracles to say, look, we, we are tapped in yep. to the, the, the power. And you even see it more broadly, you know, in my talk at the Louisville conference, I showed a quote from Gordon Robertson. So Pat Robertson's son, who runs Christian Broadcasting Network. And he wrote a blog post too, saying, January 1, 1901, that revival in Topeka, Kansas was the birth of modern Pentecostalism, the birth of the Assemblies of God and all this stuff. And so when I just, when I first discovered that, it was like, I just, I just felt a lot of relief, you know, cause it's like, oh, well, clearly, clearly this, I can see it in front of me. And I also thought it was ironic too, that what they're describing is the dissension of the Holy Spirit acting in the miraculous, miraculous way. And it's the most powerful force in the universe. You can't get more powerful than the force that created the universe. He's bigger than anything. We, we can't even comprehend that how big God is in our minds. And mm. this is what I was always taught too. His power is so great, we can't even fathom it. We can't begin to fathom it. And yet the only documented evidence that they can provide for this miraculous happening that was supposed to restore original Christianity is just some scribbles on a piece of paper, you know? So I thought that was totally paradoxical. Um, so that's Topeka. That's like the flashpoint that sort of creates mm -hmm. modern day Pentecostalism. But mm -hmm. when I dug in a little bit more, this is where it goes into the real authoritarian cult roots of the assemblies. And so where did Charles Perrin get these ideas? You know, where did he get this, these ideas about speaking in tongues? And where did he get the idea for the school that he set up, quote unquote school? Mm -hmm. uh, it was a cult uh, in Topeka. He got it from, an, from a place in Maine called Shiloh, called the Kingdom. Mm. And this was run by a guy named Frank Sanford. And Frank Sanford met Charles Perrin in Topeka. Because he had a, he was going around the country and recruiting people and bringing them back back to Maine, and he, he, this is a very traditional, you know, the authoritarian 
uh, cult mm-hmm. that he ran. And, and so Charles Perrin went there and studied, and that's where he got the idea for the school in Topeka. And so looking in at what the Assemblies of God was saying about Frank Sanford, this is another guy that they point to, to say, well, he, he also helped to pave the way. You know, he created the model for what happened in Topeka. And he also had a real burning desire to uh, evangelize the world. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that was true. Except when you look at Frank Sanford's own writings, you find this guy was, you know, walking in the hills in the pine forest and he heard a voice, you know, whispered through the pines, you know, Armageddon, and realized Mm -hmm. that God is going to need sort of a band of like special forces, like ninjas, and they're going to fight Armageddon with him and and be be victorious and end up ruling over, co-reigning, you know, with Christ. And so he also had this idea of, well, we can help bring this about by spreading the, the word, because there's a book, there's a verse in the book of Matthew that paraphrased is, you will spread the message to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. So he thought, well, let's get it going. Let's do this. Right. But he also, this is the turn of the, you know, for going from the 1800s to the 1900s. And he also realized, well, how are we going to do that? We need to innovate and find new ways. So he pulled, in order to go to Shiloh and learn there and live there, you had to give all your possessions over to him, of course. And so he took the the, um, the money and he ended up uh, buying what was at the time like a, a famous racing yacht. It had run, a, 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 I think it was across the Atlantic, mm-hmm. won a race. And so he buys this, it's like the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful ships of the Gilded Age, you know, mahogany and stained glass, mm-hmm. very fast. And he comes up with his rationale. All right, well, we're going to sail this thing around the earth and we'll go sail along the coast of Africa and we're going to blow a shofar. It's like a ram's horn. Yeah, right, Jewish. We do that for yeah. Rosh Hashanah and other holidays. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So he's like, we're going to blow this thing. And, and as we sail along the coast, we're going to say a prayer and we're going to claim that country that we can see along the shoreline. We're going to claim that for Christ and basically check that one off the list. And when we get them all checked off, you know, then, then the end will come and all this stuff. Yeah, so, I, I have to just say, you know, of course, we grew up in the age of airplanes, you know, yeah. much less spaceships. And so our consciousness is very different than the consciousness back then, where if you have to spread the ideology, you know, you get a fast boat. <laughs> exactly. And Go ahead. Yeah. And, and you can see how how that sort of thinking plays out with the rise of televangelism, right? We're going to use the television to reach people and we're going to use the radio. Then we're going to use the internet, mm-hmm. you know? So, so Pentecostals, they have always had this burning mission to evangelize the world. You know, I use that word evangelize. It's to recruit others, but also to, to give people an option to say, will you accept us or not? And then once you've sort of reached everybody, all the people groups, then that will catalyze the end of the world and, and all this stuff. So that was his idea. And he was, so he, he eventually had two ships. And in 1911, they're sailing along the coast of Africa. One was called the Coronet and another one was called the Kingdom. And they were on this mission. And the Kingdom ran aground. And so all the people on that ship had to go over to the Coronet. And they didn't have enough food and provisions for everybody. But he didn't care. He was like, we're staying out here at sea until people started dropping dead, you know, getting scurvy, starving to death until finally he came back into shore and he was arrested on a warrant for uh, wrongful imprisonment, basically. He's arrested on an outstanding warrant and that, and, but if you look, if you look at the old newspaper accounts and stuff, it's like the walking dead people coming off the ship, except for him, of course, because he was well-fed and everything. But he ended up going to federal prison. And I, and so I actually found at the archives at Bates College in Maine, which is where Frank Sanford went to school, uh, they had him archive there. And I got a, a digital copy of one of the diaries of, uh, of a kid, a teenager who was on the ship wow. and who died. And if you look at what the Assemblies of God says, they say, well, disaster struck, quote unquote, disaster struck and people died. Uh, uh, as they made as they made their way back to shore, 
right? Which is like so believable. You know, it's it's the early 1900s. They're out at sea. So many risks with being out on the high seas. Yeah. But they don't tell you that the federal indictment says that he knowingly and willingly stayed out there, even though that people on the ship didn't. His own followers didn't yep. have enough food to eat. And this diary has a timeline that shows that they were out for more than six months. And this kid ended up, he the uh, basically like a, a youth um, officer, you know, someone who looks after abused kids, uh, made this kid go to the hospital hmm. and he was found. And, and once the ship came in, and then he died three days later. Uh, so, you know, children are dying. And, and the Assemblies of God completely papers over all of that. And they say, well, Frank Sanford's legacy is this, you know, belief in the end times and a real emphasis on, you know, world missions. You know, mission. And, and yeah. I would just want to highlight that the believers in this quest think all other churches are dead and unspiritual. Only their beliefs are the correct, you know, Christ-centered yeah. beliefs. So there's no other chance to be saved if you're a Catholic or anything else, forget it, only through them, right? That exclusivity. Pretty much, you know, and you'll hear, well, there will be other sorts of, there will be other sorts of Christians, you know, in, in heaven. It's not only people in the assemblies, there will be Baptists there. But at the same time, it's exact, this word dead is a word that's commonly used. That's a dead church. Those are dead churches. And it's always like God is going to do a new thing and you have to be on fire for him and totally sold out and you know, and so it was all, there's always been a strain of elitism. And now within the, within the movement, the Pentecostal movement, right? And uh, even though initially they came from sort of very humble beginnings, it was sort of, you know, people were not as well educated, and didn't have as much of like a scholarly um, sort of approach to Christianity. But another thing I thought was, I found really interesting is that uh, the way that I was always taught was, yes, all these other churches are dead, but also that Pentecostals have been persecuted by other Christians, by, you know, more mainline Protestant, you know, denominations. They don't get us. They don't understand us. They kicked us out of the churches back, you know, back when. And when I went back and looked at some of the historical literature, it was true in many cases that some of those other churches were saying, look, we don't want this here. And so they were leaving. But when you look at the actual beliefs that they were now sort of putting out there, it, when you would get Pentecostals together, it was common that you would see people claiming to be, all right, well, I'm Jesus Christ, and I'm John the Baptist, and I'm Moses, you know, or I'm Elijah, people who claim to actually be the embodiment of these sort of reincarnated spirits mm. from the Bible. And you can see more traditional Christians, it's very easy to see them being like, yeah, that, we're not really comfortable with. <laughs> now that they wouldn't buy that. that, yeah. No, yeah. So, you know, so this is sort of this guy, so this is sort of a direct thread, a through line to this authoritarian cult in Maine, to Kansas, to uh, the Assemblies of God. But there, there's one other sort of historical track that I would love to talk about because sure. I find this fascinating too. So around the time there were these cults, right, and, and the railroads have been built, and they're, they're networked and people are sort of traveling around the country and going from one to the other. And there was one really big one in Illinois on, on the shores of Lake Michigan uh, called Zion City. And this was a place that was run by a guy named John Alexander Dowie. So this goes back to your mention of Dowie and, and, and all of this. So imagine if Bernie Madoff didn't just have a Ponzi scheme, but he created a whole town that all was one huge financial criminal enterprise, mm -hmm. basically, right? And But he was the head of the town, and he was the head of the schools and the police force, and he was the editor-in-chief of the newspaper, and he ran the jail, and he owned the bank. And everyone who worked in the town had to work in industries that he set up, and then you make your money, and you, but you deposit your money in his bank, et cetera, et cetera. There was, there was no other church. He was also the priest. He was the high priest of the town. He was the only church allowed in this town in Zion City. And so he founded this thing in the late 1800s. And this is a guy who was Australian and left Australia under somewhat 
dubious circumstances, like his church mysteriously kind of burned down. And he came to the United States and started trying to make a living as a faith healer in California. Didn't do very well. But then he had this great idea that, well, I'm going to go to the World's Fair outside Chicago. And he set up a tent outside. And it was a, it was a very, I mean, you're going to relate to this. It's the sort of thing where you, you have your lieutenants find people who have psychosomatic illnesses, you know, and you have them pay you money. And then you say, all right, well, now you're, you've plunked down your money, you've invested now, and now you're going to get to see the healer, right. John Dowie. And he's going to bring you up on stage in front of the crowd, and he's going to heal you. And then when you're healed, he's going to write you up in his newspaper and give you 20 copies since you're going to have your own story in there. And then you, you're, going to, you're going to give that to 20 of your friends. And so he used this newsletter very strategically to build a following. And then he, then he decided, well, I'm going to build this town. And he, and he had thousands of his followers move into this town. And it was, it, it was, everyone was so, they were watched and guarded. He eventually built a, a spy network called the Zion Restoration Host. It had about 3,000 people in it. And you had to sign an oath and publicly take an oath that said, I will put John Dowie above everything, my family, my country, everything. I will go anywhere that he sends me, wow. you know, anything like this. And you can even, you can read the newspapers from the town and they'll be like, we need 30 people from the Zion Restoration Host to show up at the train station tomorrow at 7 a.m. and bring this, you know, this sort of thing. And it, it, was, every, it was a basically a police state that he ran. Mm-hmm. And the lab, you know, I mentioned the financial crimes. These were elaborate. So if you worked in his lace industry or in, in this big industrial bakery, he told you that, well, if you own this, you collectively as employees own this. Isn't right. that great? You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to own your own company. You're, this is employee owned. Except he had his lawyers set up shell companies, dummy companies. And, he, and people bought shares of companies that didn't even exist. And then, of course, the money got deposited into the bank. And he just raided the bank whenever he wanted. And eventually, he bankrupted the town. And people lost their life savings. And he was living, you know, this extravagant lifestyle uh, based on this, this uh, enterprise that all started with faith healing. And so if you look at what the Assemblies of God says about this guy, and, and this, this, these were not secrets. This was like front page news consistently. This guy met with Teddy Roosevelt in the White House and wow. had thousands of people at Madison Square Garden. This was big news stories back then. And if you look at what the Assemblies of God says about Dowie, they say, yeah, he got a little screwy later in life. But he was, of course, you know, used by God, no doubt. And uh, his beliefs in divine healing were instrumental in making this a core distinguishing part of the, the Assemblies of Gods and, and Pentecostal doctrine. And you can even look at other sort of, um, you know, con artists who came out of there, like John, John Lake, John G. Lake, for example, another con artist who came out of there and he ended up, he was a lieutenant of Dowies and ended up escaping to Africa. And he basically seeded Pentecostalism on the African continent. Yeah. And we saw in so, Kenya, like over you know, hundreds and hundreds of people died from stopping yeah. to eat food because their prophet said that these are the last days, so you should stop yeah. eating. And children die too. And that's yeah. this year, 2023. Hundreds of people. Hundreds, yeah. Yeah. Awful. I know. It's it's a real shame. And, and through my work, you know, I mentioned I have been working in global health for 20 years. So I've been to Africa, I don't know, 25, 26 times. And you can see in, in different countries, and it's kind of the same story. You see and hear stories from people who live there of, okay, oh, yeah, that church that we're driving by, that guy's a Pentecostal church, and that guy sells, you know, healing water, or he sells right. fabric or something. And, you know, and some people are like, yeah, it's a scam, but he, you know, that guy is living large. And, and he's yeah, like, holy handkerchiefs like, that will like protect this. you from COVID. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you see the, you know, the legacy of this. And at the same time, all of this is sort of getting started in the United States in the decades after the Civil War. Mm. And so it's, I think it's very easy to see how the country was very traumatized 
and people witnessed atrocities, took part in atrocities. And I think the message of it does, none of that really matters. You can die and be reborn, you know, be born again and start over. And this isn't a time when there's no real sort of academic or clinical understanding of PTSD or any, right. you know, any of these things. I, I can see how that would be a very attractive message for people who had endured trauma. And when you look at the Assemblies of God's missionary work, it's explicitly within their own documents, it's explicitly based on an interpretation of Matthew that says, we're gonna, like I said earlier, we're going to spread the message to the end of the world, the end will come. That was sort of the goal, the driving agenda. Um, but they were also seeing where they would go. Because if you're an enterprise and you have finite amounts of money, you've got to figure out, okay, where are we going to really allocate resources and send missionaries? And there was a guy named Paul Hogan who ran their whole missionary. And this is the, the biggest Protestant missionary enterprise in the world, right? So this is a massive, massive operation. He ran it for 30 years during the, during the middle of the 20th century. During that time, they had a, a missionary publication. Do you remember what this is called? I talked about this a little bit. Uh, Global conquest. No military uh, adjectives there. No. Yeah. So that, you know, so they had a publication called Global Conquest, and when you look at his writings, and again, official Assemblies of God documents, what his whole philosophy was: Well, we're not. We we are guided by the Holy Spirit. So this is not a human enterprise. This is a, a spirit-driven enterprise, and we are just his servants. And so we can't sit and just strategize and figure out where we're going to go. We have to rely on divine intervention to show us where the harvest fields will be ripe mm. to go and harvest souls. And so even, and this is, I think, really just... This is, of all the things that I've sort of dug up so far, this is one of the most, this is one of the things that really sort of strikes me to my core. They saw the dropping of the atomic bombs in World War II as divine assistance for their missionaries to move into Japan to start converting people and recruiting Because they, in order, you know, the way that they told it was that it, broke the spell that the emperor had, you know, apparently the emperor was divine and what sort of divine leader would have those atomic bombs drop in their cities. Right. right? So they're like, so people don't see him as divine anymore. And so that's going to create now sort of a vacuum and a spiritual hunger for actual true reality, you know, for a true divinity. And so they saw that as a divine act that helped them move into Japan. And of course, it was uh, horribly traumatizing, which makes people yeah. more susceptible to anybody with certainty. Uh, exactly. Offer them, you know, hope. Exactly. Yeah. We, you know, what I, I always learned it was broken people. Mm. You know, the people who need God the most are the ones who are broken. Mm. And that's just class, classic. You know, people yeah, experience more susceptibility. Are yeah. Yeah. Problems. Yeah. Exactly. So, so, you know, those are some of the historical things that I've found just in, I didn't mention this earlier, but I, the, the, the Assemblies of God, they have the, an archive at their headquarters in St. Louis. So I just, you can go on the website and just buy these documents. And so that's what I did. And sort of bringing it to present day, one of the things that I find quite alarming is that if you go back a few decades, like the 70s, this the, the kingdom now philosophy, right? Described mm -hmm. earlier, right? The kingdom of God is heaven's gonna be on earth. This is the sort of doctrinal basis of the new apostolic reformation. Right. And these were debates that were being had within Pentecostalism back in hmm. say the 70s. And at the time, the sort of the official perspective on this from the assemblies of God at least was, this is not cool. We, we, this is not what we believe in. This is heresy. We're not on board with this. And they even there's a warning in this in this magazine that they have called Paraclete. And Paraclete is sort of like a pseudo academic 
study of the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And so they had a whole issue re- uh, that was devoted to analyzing King, this Kingdom Now movement that was just getting started. And one of the lines in there was that for this movement, there are no guardrails. Mm. And I thought that was in a way, you know, talking about prophets, I thought that was in a way very prophetic <laughs> because we're starting to see the manifestations of that today and how popular this movement's getting, how close to power they've gotten and how explicit they are in saying that they think that they have authority over everybody and they have strategies for taking over every segment of society. Yes, they the do. Seven, you've written about this, the seven mountains mandate or the seven mountains strategy, right? They're going to take over education and government and law and the arts and everything. And as a precursor for God coming back or Jesus Christ coming back to earth. And you can see like, where are the guardrails here? What, where, what are the limits on people's beliefs? When will people start to say, this is too much? I, this is too far-fetched, or this is anti-democratic, or this is authoritarian. And I keep going back in my mind, even as I read the news on a near daily basis, I think about that line in, in Paraclete that my own church put out decades ago saying there are no guardrails to this movement. Right. But they've become so politically powerful that the leaders of the Assemblies of God are, have now joined forces with them. So, you know, Bill Johnson, for example, mm-hmm. he has Bethel, you've written about him, and, uh, and Bethel as, a, as an example of a, a church that you can see, you can analyze it through the bite model, they fit the model, bite model with authoritarian control. And he now sits on a leadership council with heads of the Assemblies of God for this global structure they now have called an Empowered 21. And him, so Bill Johnson and other, uh, these new apostolic reformation sort of figureheads are part of this leadership council and working side by side with the the Assemblies of God as part of this larger spirit-led movement. Mm -hmm. And they've taken over the, uh, a lot of the leadership in Australia, the Assemblies of God, where Hillsong came from. And if you look at those documents, they say democracy is old wineskin. That's old. Yeah, well, you know, I, now, now we. Yeah, well, I was going to say yeah. when I was in the Moonies, democracy was satanic. That was 74. You know, yeah. God doesn't want yeah, well, democracy, he wants a theocracy so God can yeah. rule through us. Exactly. Co labor, co labor, right? Yep. And so you're, you're seeing now in a lot of these documents and books, another one, Bill Hammond, he's, you know, he's sort of the, he worked very closely with Peter Wagner, who is a, a NAR sort of big, big, pioneer. big name. Yep. Yeah. And he's got a book uh, called um, God's Weapons of War. And he says in there explicitly, we've got to get used to the fact that not only did God kill millions of people in the Bible, but God enabled his followers to kill millions of people in the Bible. <sighs> I mean, to kill millions of people, right? And we, this is something we've got we've to face. And as we, as we sort of morph into this new army of God, and, you know, he claims to be able to divert the path of hurricanes and stuff like this. And, and so you, you think, like, man, what are the limits on people's capacity to believe? And there just doesn't appear to be any real limits to what human beings are capable of That's believing. the problem when you turn over your power and your conscience to some external authority figure who claims to be speaking for God, they can yeah. get you to do atrocities very, very easily. I was, as a Mooney, I would sing heavenly soldiers for God. And yeah. I was just looking on social media today and there are all these veterans who are talking about Jesus you know, needs to use rifles uh, to uh, to do God's will. So they're setting people up for warfare, unfortunately. And it's the enemies of America and democracy and human rights that want to see us killing each other, unfortunately. Exactly. Yeah, it's co- co-laboring. Bill Hammond writes this about this in terms of it's we're co-laboring with Christ to bring about this heavenly kingdom on earth and you know he'll also say well some you know some of this is figurative and we'll use the but it's it's incremental right it's like incremental evolution 
And how many times can you do a Jericho march around your sanctuary and your church? And how many times can you, you know, engage in spiritual warfare before you start to say, well, this isn't really having the results that we really want. And what's the rationale to start taking matters into our own hands? You know, all of those rationales are starting to be, are, are, la- are being laid, you know, are being laid today. Yeah. And so my, my hope is that, you know, we used to sing this, this song, you know, in, in church about, uh, about shining your light, right? Like this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And I, I think about looking back at the history of the movement and demystifying it and showing people who are involved where this all comes from and who the people were who even groups like the Assemblies of God even point to themselves as saying these were our founding fathers. And if we look at the historical record and we shine a light a light on it, it's not like a purifying light. It's more of like a like a demystifying light, right? Like you turn the light on and all of a sudden you start to see where this comes from. And it's my hope that as more and more people start to find out about the real history of this movement and where it came from, then they'll start to, to question it a little bit more and start to think, oh man, where what have I gotten caught up into? And, you know, there are true believers, but for people who might have doubts or entertaining doubts, people like me who was sitting in, sitting in the service being like, I don't Yeah. Yep. And if I may, as a Jew, if we're reading the New Testament, which I've read many times, Jesus said, uh, render unto Caesar what's Caesar. Like, let's not be political. He said it's harder for a rich person to enter uh, the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to enter the eye of a needle. He said, as you do to the least in the kingdom, you do unto me, which is the opposite completely of yeah. this. these people who want to take over the world and want to have the finest yacht, you know, cruise ships and, and, and mansions and Rolls Royces and Lear jets, which a lot of these leaders, um, you know, have. And, you know, yeah. Paul, you're so bright. You're so talented. I'm so glad you got away. You, you know, you're one of the the ex ex people or ex evangelicals. I've I've talked to a number of people who like to call themselves ex evangelicals. There's a lot of young people who are realizing. Wait a minute, this is what we were taught, but does this hold water? And what's the result if I continue to blindly follow? What's going to happen to the planet? Because we're destroying yeah. the earth. Yeah. And 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 there I'm optimistic because there is this movement within broader evangelical Christianity, this deconstruction movement where people, and they do seem to be overwhelmingly younger, who are saying there's a mismatch between the values that I read when I read about Jesus Christ in the New Testament and the Beatitudes and what I'm now seeing. And they're starting to question. And... I, I have to believe that that is going to continue to pick up steam in a way that will start to create sort of like a balancing effect to all of this and help people who are really deeply in it, not just see, oh, well, okay, I was really taken for a ride and, and exploited, psychologically exploited to become a part of this, this movement or this network. But I also, there are other people out there, there's a community out there that where I can exit and I won't actually give up everything. Mm-hmm. And I'll be able to, I'll be okay, I'll be able to land on my feet. Because I think that's really important, you know, having those, like an exit yep. ramp, I think is important for a lot of people. Yeah, and I'm really grateful for your company, Italia, and your work wanting to teach, especially young researchers and other uh, aspiring academicians, how to message uh, more effectively in a way that's going to help others, help the planet. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I, I, and that's directly informed by my experience. Yeah, I grew up in an environment where everyone was like, <clears throat> "We have this message. We have to get it out. We've got to get it out." There. Spreading it is the most important thing in life. And then I've worked with academics and researchers and top experts in the world in various fields over the last 20 years. And 
and found, all right, well, yeah, you're doing amazing research and, and developing all these insights and you're publishing them, but they're just not getting out there. Right. You know, they're just, and, and, and really I worry about now, especially with AI, generative AI coming, it's harder and harder to maintain a grasp on, you know, just sort of tangible reality when it's becoming augmented digitally and all of these things. It's not getting easier, right? It's, it's going to get harder to sort of tell truth from fiction. And for there to be a chasm between people who are generating data and evidence-based insights and, and sort of the general public, I, I feel like that chasm is just going to be, uns it's unsustainable. Yeah, and I would so, add, you know, we need to get to back to values, like don't do to others mm -hmm. what you don't want done to yourself. Yeah. And that's why yeah. on the influence continuum, I try to say, yeah, there's influence along the whole continuum. We can do ethical influence. Like I want to persuade people to think for themselves, yeah. not to blindly follow me or some, you know, black and white, all or nothing ideology. I want people to to be fully them. And I do myself believe that we each have a divine spark in each of us. And we have an mm -hmm. obligation to, to that uniqueness to be ourselves because we can enrich other people by just being true to ourselves. Yeah. And, and like you're saying, really recognizing the inherent value in other people and not telling them guess what, without this, without accepting what I'm giving you right. doctrinally and sort of uh, from this, from the perspective of like my own um, orientation of the Bible and all this stuff, you know, unless you take this and swallow it and die to yourself and accept it and become obedient to it, you're going to be nothing. Right. You know, you're nothing, right? That That's not having any sort of respect for the person you're talking to, even if you are trying to persuade. So even if you're trying to persuade someone of something, just understanding that they have a mind and agency yeah. and they're not just a, an empty vessel to be exploited or a soul to be harvested. Yep. And I would say anyone listening to this who's been involved with the Assemblies of God or the New Apostolic Reformation or any group, do what what uh, Paul has done. Do what Steve has done. Like, I wanted to understand what are the roots of the Moonies? Like, what's the history? Oh, Moon was in a cult. Oh, he stole the beliefs from this other cult from North Korea. Mm -hmm. Oh, and just you de demystify it and then you share it. You write books or you write articles and you want to share to help people get out of the deception. Who wants to live yeah. a lie? Yeah, no, nobody, I think, I think nobody really wants to live a lie. Right. And I think that's something that we can, something that I think that we can hang our head on is just the understanding that people don't want to live a lie. Yeah. And aspire to change your mind if you find new evidence. And, you know, and instead of the truth with a capital T, where you stop right. thinking, know that it, it, truth evolves with, with us because we're not perfect. We don't know everything. And so our understanding will continue to evolve. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So last words, Paul Jensen, you're, I'm so glad to meet you and know you. Thank you for your good work. Same, likewise. And, you know, just reading your books when I was starting to dig into the AG were a huge help. And so I appreciate you not just having me on, but providing this platform for other people to come on and share their experiences and share their research. I think it's, really critical. And I would just say to anyone who might be listening who's involved in this sort of environment, if you have doubts or you feel in your gut, oh, I don't think that this is right. Don't squash that. Right. You know, that's that's still a small voice. Yeah. Just pursue start it. to listen and see where it falls. Yeah. See where it falls. Pursue it. And I think that you demonstrate, Paul, you're happily married. You have a successful career. Uh, I, too, have, you know, had a very robust life. It's 47 years since I was yeah. rescued from the Moonies. And I'm so glad every single day that I'm free to think for myself and make my own decisions. It's a great thing. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, far far from being complete, <laughs> a complete mess and lost and floating, you know, on a sea of deception or, or whatever, any metaphor that is used to scare people into staying with the group, you can have a, a, a beautiful, fulfilling and, and joyous life. Yeah. Just understand yeah. the difference between a legitimate fear and a phobia. Yeah, Phobias exactly. are not real. Nothing bad's going to happen. They were just using it as yeah. a tool of emotional control. Yeah, exactly. So thank you, Paul Jensen. And um, let's be in touch and let's continue to message healthy, healthy, truthful, inspiring uh, words and messages. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at CultExpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at IGOTOUT.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.